Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're beginning our series in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, it's been a while. Let me reintroduce myself. I'm Tim Kirk. I'm the interim pastor here at Clemson Prez for this school year. I'm here with my wife, Sally. We are parents to four young men. We are grandparents to uh, five grandkids. And uh, they're all basically located in the Indianapolis area. Sally and I served in the uh, Presbyterian Church in America in central Indiana for nearly 30 years. And, um, and then decided to have an adventure and, and to be open to being sent somewhere for a season. And so uh, here we are at Clemson, South Carolina. I remember when Sally and I pulled up to be interviewed about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, as we got out, I thought, I've seen this place before. Having never been in Clemson before, I, it was puzzling. I thought, I've seen this place. And I think when you all built this final section, uh, there was some publication of the denomination that showed photos because those, those open passageways and the brick and, and all. I had seen it before. I think it was probably the dead of winter in Indiana, and some magazine published this, and I remember looking at it and wondering, is this heaven? <laughs> And then I read a little further, and no, it's Clemson. Close, close. Uh, I like to be called by the nickname Einstein. Because my last name is Kirk, my nickname growing up was captain all the time, whether I was the captain on the team or not. But I prefer Einstein because ever since I was a little kid, I've been told, you are no Einstein. One time, I went into a, 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 a greasy spoon burger place in Chattanooga before we moved here, and uh, th there was a gal behind the cash register and, and then a, a co-worker, and I walked in and, and made my order, and then she said, who's it for? What's the name? And I said, Einstein. And she looked me up and down and said, yeah, I can see that. And her co-worker, who was pilfering food over on the side, turned and said, looked at me and said, yeah, I can see that too. I said, wait a minute. You do know that Einstein was not known for his looks, right? <laughs> and the cash register gal said, no, no, I mean, you look intelligent. And sticky, sticky fingers over there said, yeah, yeah, I, I can see it. So I thought, I'm going to eat here every day. I got my order. I'm leaving, the next customer comes in. He's, his t-shirt does not cover his gut. 
there's a mustard stain from last Friday. He walks in and the cashier says, welcome back, Mr. Universe. <laughs> That's when I realized I, I'm not going to eat there every day. They're not a good judge of character. The big idea for our series in Philippians is this. The gospel is the call to give up the life of your dreams, to joyfully gain the life Christ died to give you. Jesus didn't die generally for you. He died specifically for you. He doesn't give you a general, generic life. He has a specific life in mind for each of us. And the gospel is the call to joyfully receive that life as we let go of, of our plans, of what it was that we want to get out of this life. Joyfully gain the life Christ died to give us. Joy is a recurring theme in Paul's letter. to the Five times he says joy, and another nine times he says rejoice. Paul prays with joy. Paul faces potential martyrdom with joy, and Paul exhorts us to continually rejoicing. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul prays with joy. Chapter 2, verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. With me. Rejoice as I gain the life Christ died to give me. Joy. Rejoice. So that then he culminates, as only he can say it in verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The gospel is the call to give up the life of our dreams, to joyfully gain the life Christ died to give us. Martin Luther, it's the quote that was posted at the beginning of your bulletin, said this, <clears throat> we must raise up ourselves with this consideration that the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. This joy properly pertains to captives, those that feel the captivity of sin and death, to the tender-hearted, terrified with the judgment of God. These are the disciples in whose hearts should be planted laughter and joy. This is why Paul wrote to the Philippians. This is why the Spirit inspired this letter to be included in the canon for us. Paul in the first verse, identify who he's writing to. There are two groups. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. <clears throat> there are two groups. I would call them saints and servants. First of all, who are the servants? He says, the overseers and deacons. The servants of the church are the God-ordained 
leaders of the church, the elders and the deacons, as overseers or elders, an elder is to be a servant leader. Deacons are to be lead servants. These are the servants of the church. Elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. If you are an officer here at CPC, this letter is written to you. Paul was the church planter in Philippi. He spent 18 months there. He was the planter and the interim pastor at the church in Philippi. The reality is we are all interims in whatever role we have. Interims. In 18 months, Paul, the planter interim pastor, reached pagan Europeans, and when he left, after 18 months, he left ordained elders and deacons to serve that church. Let me say again to my fellow officers, this is written to us, and whatever God's going to do in this season, it's going to start with us. Change is going to start with us. Revival is going to start with us, to the servants of Clemson Presbyterian. Speed of the leaders, speed of the team. Church leaders lead at the speed of trust. So the first group are the servants, the elders and deacons. And then, but he also says to all the saints. Saint means a set-apart one. The Apostle Paul never singles out an elite group within the church and calls them saints. Never. Each Christian is set apart by God and called by God a saint. Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future if they come to know Christ. So who are these saints? And that's what we're going to spend the lion's share of our time. We actually meet three of these saints in the book of Acts. I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Acts 16. In Acts 16, Dr. Luke records three conversions in Philippi. Acts 16 beginning with verse 6. And in these verses, we're going to see Paul didn't intend to go to Philippi. That wasn't, that wasn't his plan for his life and ministry. Acts 16, 6. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, Verse 8, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you notice 
Paul didn't intend to go to Philippi. He had other plans. And it, it took the acts of the Trinity, the Spirit, Jesus, and the Father to get him to Philippi. Do you see that? Verse 6, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And then concluding in verse 10, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you think when Paul and Silas entered Philippi, which this is the, first, this is the beachhead into Europe, this is the first European congregation, he was called to an entirely different continent. Do you think when Paul and Silas landed in Philippi, they landed with expectation, anticipation? Do you think they prayed expectantly? Do you think they shared the gospel expectantly? You better believe it. When God said, no, no, go, Paul's expectations, his faith must have been strengthened, anticipating what God was going to do. So often we do not live expectantly. Did you come to church this morning expectantly? Recently, when Sally and I said, yes, Lord, we'll go on an adventure for a season, we thought at one point we might go to New Zealand, and then we thought we might go to St. Louis. We, there were all kinds of possibilities, but then in a vision, Chris Peters and Greg Batt and Bill Fisk said, come to Clemson. Do you think Sally and I drove into Clemson expecting God to work? Charles Spurgeon was approached by a young preacher. Charles Spurgeon was a noted preacher. And the young man said, I don't know what my problem is. I, I preach, I prepare, I pray, and I, I'm seeing little fruit. R rarely do I see lives transformed. I don't know what my problem is. And Spurgeon said, well, you don't expect lives to be transformed every time you preach, do you? And the guy said, no. He said, that's your problem. I want you to know every time I stand up here and open God's Word, I preach expectantly. I took my son golfing. He was, it was just a beginner. This was 20-some years ago. Just the two of us, little par three. And when you go golfing with a buddy, there's a danger that they're going to add someone else to your group, which you don't want, because you're wanting to golf with your buddy. And they added a guy. Okay. Great guy, warm, very helpful to my son, very, you know, helped him with his game. By the end, it was just so clear. I said, I said, you're a pastor, aren't you? And he was taking me, he goes, yes, how could you tell? I said, the love of Christ just shines through you. He said, that means so much. He said, by the way, what do you do? <laughs> he and I both packed our clubs to get to the course. We all had carved out some time to go golfing. He went expectantly. 
The gospel is the call to give up the life of your dreams. You see, when we hold on to the life of our dreams, we keep comparing our life to our dreams and saying, God, there's the gap. You know what Paul says? For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's our passage in a couple of weeks. Paul is saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. We can look at Paul's life and see it's a different life than what we're called to because Jesus died for a specific, personalized plan for each of his disciples. Do you want the life Christ died to give you? During the time in Philippi, three people were converted. These are the people that Paul's writing to. These are the saints, and they're somewhat of a motley crew. They are racially diverse, they're socially diverse, they're spiritually diverse, but each of them experienced gospel transformation. The first is described in Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That also can be translated a God-fearer. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The little we know about Lydia, she was a businesswoman, worked in the fashion industry of the day. She owned her own home, had a household or a family. We don't know. Uh, There's no mention of her husband. She was a God-fearer. That is an unsaved churchgoer, would be the the modern equivalent. She goes to the, the river to gather with Jewish women. She's a Gentile, but she, she's intrigued. She's, she's learned about the God of the Old Testament, that he is a judge, that he is holy, that he's righteous. And she's intrigued. She wants to know more. She is a God-fearer, but she doesn't know Christ. And then God opens her heart. You know, the thing about unsaved, unconverted religious people, unconverted churchgoers, is they are either proud because they feel like they're doing well and God should bless them. They're better than most. They're proud or they're despairing. If they're, if they're living up to their expectations, they become self-righteous. And if they're failing their expectations, they feel condemned. It's a miserable thing to be an unsaved churchgoer, a religious person. Lydia becomes Europe's first Christian. And one of the evidences of it is she says, come to my home. Open heart, open home. You know, most religious people, unsaved religious people, can't open their home unless it's perfect. Unless unless it reflects so well on them. That's what they're living their life for, for things to reflect well on them. But when your heart is opened and you're converted and you see the unconditional love of Christ, open heart, 
open home. That's Lydia. And then we learn about a slave girl, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Uh, It's also can be translated as spirit of python, which seems to point back to the Garden of Eden and the serpent. She had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This slave girl is on the other end of the spiritual continuum. Lydia, religious, polished, accomplished. The slave girl in bondage. She's controlled by people and in the spiritual realm. She's mistreated from without, and she is demonically controlled from within. Opposed, possessed, oppressed. In contrast to Lydia, a religious person who would see sin as moral failure, which sin is moral failure, the pagan sees sin as a loss of freedom. And in this girl's life, we see that. She's in bondage. She's spiritually in bondage. If you are open to spiritual things but are not open to the exclusive claims of Christ, you're not dealing with Jesus. You're dealing with the devil. And the freedom you want will lead to bondage. St. Augustine said, you do sin and sin will do you. You want freedom and you pursue your freedom regardless of God's moral law and it'll lead to bondage. And then there's the third conversion. The Philippian jailer, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's worth noting that's the second time that the, the household is mentioned. It's why we talk about covenant baptism and the family, not just individuals. <clears throat> the jailer. This guy is most likely a retired military man. Caesar would reward his military uh, soldiers with a retirement plan. It's light lifting. You've conquered nations. Now just oversee my prison, oversee my jail. And this was a man that had a high view of duty and honor. He had risked life and limb 
for an earthly empire. And so when he thinks he has failed Caesar, he draws his sword because the only honorable thing to do was to take his life. You have an independent businesswoman who worshiped without understanding. She needed gospel instruction. You have a slave girl who's physically and spiritually enslaved. She needs gospel emancipation. And then you have a retired soldier who has lived his life, risked his life for an earthly kingdom. What does he need? The Caesar was the most powerful person in the world. What did he need to see? He needed to see heavenly power, and he did. He needs to see Christians responding in an earthquake. And so do many of our friends. Paul and Silas were beaten and chained in the inner cell. The passage we read, it said he brought lights in. Why? They're in the inner cell, in chains, in the dark. Around midnight, with aching backs and stench-filled lungs and an uncertain future, Paul and Silas worshiped. And the earth and the spiritual realm shook. (laughs) Spurgeon, who I mentioned earlier, put it this way, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when you can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. What were Paul and Silas doing, singing with aching backs and stench-filled lungs? What were they doing? They were joyfully receiving the life Christ died to give them. So, Lord, I guess this is a part of the plan. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. It was their doxological evangelism. They're bearing witness to their love for the Savior in the dark that after the earth shook, the guard says, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? They didn't slip out, which they could have done, but rather they stayed put. And then Paul shares the good news with a a man who had given his life for an earthly kingdom that would soon pass away. Beloved, our friends need to see how we respond in the dark with a life we didn't plan on, wouldn't have chosen, joyfully receiving that life. Paul is writing to a bunch of used-to-be's. A proud religious woman, a bound slave girl, a man who was entering his golden years, semi-retirement, having served Caesar. As I get closer to the golden years, I see the lure and the temptation of not wanting the life Christ died to give me, but wanting the life that I've been 
working on planning and saving for all these years. This is the group that the Apostle Paul is writing to. So what do you say to a group of people who have given up the life of their dreams? What did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to say to people who had so dramatically, joyfully come to Christ? And as we regather as a church at 346 Old Greenville Highway, what do we need to say to one another? Well, Paul gives it to us in verses 3 through 6. I thank God for you. I pray for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And God will complete what he started in you. Notice what Paul says, verse 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's Paul's message to the Philippians. That as we regather, it ought to be your message to one another. I thank my God for you. Secondly, verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I am praying for you with joy because of your partnership. And finally, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit-given message from Paul. Paul to the Philippians, it should be a God-given message that you have for one another, and it is certainly my message to you. I thank God for you. I pray with joy for you, and I'm confident that he who began a good work in Clemson Press will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We must raise ourselves up with this consideration, says Luther, that the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. This joy properly pertains to captives, captives like Lydia. She was captive to her self-righteousness. Captives like the slave girl, outwardly captive and inwardly, spiritually, and even the, the, the jailer, captive to his duty and to a kingdom that was going to pass away. This joy properly pertains to captives. These are the disciples in whose hearts should be planted laughter and joy. And so Paul and I say to the saints and servants of Clemson Press, the gospel is the call to give up the life of your dreams and to joyfully and expectantly gain the life Christ died to give you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so intimate, you are so personal with us, that there is a life, a specific life that you have planned for us. And oh, how easily we chafe at it. Lord Jesus, would you please make us wholehearted that we would want your will. That in fact, our wanting your will is your will. So make us willing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.